0: The kingdom is come, the glory is yours, and the battle is over." That's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, this week, I got to fulfill one of my all-time sports dreams. I got to attend the ACC tournament in Greensboro on Friday. It was awesome. My, my sports dreams have changed a little bit, okay? Back in, like, eighth grade, my sports dream was to play in the ACC tournament, okay? But sitting on the end of the bench for the Phillips Falcons middle school team, I realized Dean Smith is never going to see my talent sitting here, all right? So I gave up on that dream a long time ago. But I got to see the game on Friday, and, um, and I got to see UNC play, and the great comeback, we were so close, all right? And uh, I was there with my dad and my two brothers, which is a great family experience, and they were mocking me because as we were making the comeback, I'm like doing the math in my head, like the time and the points, and I'm standing up and I'm yelling, guys, this is totally doable. And they're like, totally doable? That's not something you yell at a sporting event, all right? But I'm a nerd like that, okay? It was great. There you go. So good good times, good times. I'm, I'm excited about this morning. Uh, this morning we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, normally we preach uh, as uh, each sermon is kind of part of a larger series, okay? And we're starting a new series next week on Jonah, going through the book of Jonah together and how that matches up with Jesus' journey in Lent. And it's going to be a really interesting uh, journey. I think I'm excited about that. Uh, but today is is a little bit different. Okay, this is kind of a standalone sermon. We don't do a lot of those. Normally, they're they're connected to a larger picture. Uh, but today is a standalone sermon, and what we're doing today is as a way of highlighting this journey that we've been on through reading scriptures for 90 days, as we read through the entire New Testament together as a church uh, over 90 days. We're at the halfway point today, basically. Um, We are looking at today's passage and one of the passages um, that was part of today's reading. Today we're going to be we would be reading from Mark 15, Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6. And so we're going to zoom in on a part of Ephesians 6 this morning and uh, study that together. And then and then maybe you've already read that maybe later today, maybe like two weeks when you catch up, which is okay. All right. You'll be coming across that. And, uh, and, and we'll be doing this together here. So Ephesians chapter 6, and we're looking specifically at verses 10 through 18. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Now, I have to start with a little bit of a confession because this is the passage of Scripture where Paul highlights the armor of God the armor of God and what it means to, to walk in that and what it means uh, to be fitted with that spiritual armor. And I was resistant to this starting out, okay? I was resistant to this because, to be honest, I feel like the armor of God is kind of this imagery that, that, that I remember from Sunday school, Okay, And it's this thing that kind of has just this childish kind of thing to it for me. And I thought, man, we've got to go into something deeper than the armor of God. Like, I'm pretty sure we graduated past that, like, in in Sunday school, right? And I remember as, like, a a little kid, I remember my friend had the toys of the armor of God, all right? He had, like, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit... (laughs) And I remember seeing that and thinking I was kind of jealous. I was like, oh, man, my parents only buy me like Transformers and G.I. Joes, right? <laughs> Thank you, Mom and Dad. Okay. Um, but but I kind of think of it in that terms, in this kind of childish, like Sunday school kind of thing that maybe we should be graduating past now. But I felt very convicted over that. I felt very convicted over that and this sense of, We are never outgrowing. We are never outgrowing these key passages. And these emerge as key passages that people become very familiar with for a reason. It's because through the centuries, Christians have gravitated to these core and key passages that have played a major role in in firming up their faith. And I just felt very convicted in that, in this kind of calling me out in that pride, okay? Saying, you are not, you're not above this passage, all right? You're not graduated past this. You need to go back to this. You need to go deeper into this. And you need to see what new things I reveal to you through this passage. That's where we are today. Humility is something that the Holy Spirit cultivates in us. As he teaches us to surrender our pride, humiliation is something that we bring on ourselves when we choose instead to hang on to our pride. I want the Holy Spirit to cultivate humility in us as a congregation, and if not, then we'll bring humiliation upon ourselves. So let's come out of that spirit this morning as we study this passage, okay? Father, help us today give us humility open our hearts up to how you want to teach us from this core passage help us to see ourselves as standing in line with generation after generation after generation of Christians who have taken such encouragement and strength from this passage. Do that for us today as well. Build that up in our hearts today. Free us and open us up. Teach us from your word. See your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6. First of all, a little background on, on the book of Ephesians. It, it's written to a church in a city called Ephesus, okay, the author is Paul, and um, it was written while Paul was imprisoned in Rome, okay, so he's in prison for the sake of the gospel, that's why he is in prison, and he is writing a letter to encourage a church that he helped start there in Ephesus, and so um, that's what this book is about. It's a powerful, powerful book, very rich theology in this book about our adoption as children into the family of God, about salvation that comes to us through Jesus, through faith in Jesus alone, by grace alone. Very powerful book that places uh, a lot of emphasis on the supremacy of Christ. And it's a very powerful, powerful book. Uh, And here at the end, as he wraps up his letter, is where he pulls in this, this last bit of encouragement For this church and and encouraging them to stand firm in the faith that has been planted in their hearts and uh, to put on the armor of God. He's already challenged them to take off so many things that marked their old life. And now he's challenging them to put on these marks of the Christian life, of what it means to live for Christ and to stand firm for Christ um, in the reality of the world around them. Ephesus was a very influential city. Uh, it, was, it was a, there were a lar- large population there. It's a Roman city, uh, a harbor city. So it was at an intersection of an important uh, Roman trade route there. And uh, because of this, it, it, it grew in its influence, okay? It was also the home uh, to a temple for the goddess Artemis or, or Diana, Okay. And so, so, so many different cultural pieces that are coming together here in this large city of Ephesus. And as we take a step back and we look at these different things, what we see is a a large competition, okay? And what we see is a place that would be built to be very hostile towards the message of the gospel. This is not the kind of place where you want to start out a church. If you step back and you are looking at the demographics, it doesn't look like the kind of place that would be really receptive to the gospel. Paul looks at all of these factors of the culture fighting against the gospel here in Ephesus. He looks at it and we can see this like smile come across Paul's face and he kind of winks at us and he says, perfect. All right. In fact, let's make it our headquarters, okay? And that's what Paul does. For a couple of years, it becomes the hub of his ministry. And as he preaches the gospel in this place, he begins in the synagogues preaching to the Jewish people there about how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that they've been taught and and everything that they believe. And the controversy stirs up there, and he's forced out of the synagogue. So then he goes into the public teaching places, and he begins to teach it there and I love this about Paul. He sees it that in these places of these these marketplaces of ideas, he knows that Christ is supreme in those places and he goes and he preaches it boldly because he knows that every human heart is longing for the hope that can be found in Jesus Christ. Christianity is such a revolutionary revolutionary moment, a movement and it has its place, and it has where it can stand in these marketplaces of ideas. And so Paul goes and he takes that and he proclaims Christ there and he sees um, a lot of growth in the church that he plants there, okay? So this is kind of the background of of the place um, that Paul is sending this letter back to. So given that, that there are all of these factors coming together against the church, Paul closes his letter with this encouragement to put on the armor of God and to be prepared to stand firm in the faith. Here's how he starts in uh, chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, after everything else that I've told you here in this letter, I'm closing with this. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. So, this is what he's saying at the beginning, when he starts to talk about this, about the armor of God. He pulls in this imagery, this kind of military, this kind of battle type of imagery. Now, this would have been familiar imagery for the people because it was an important Roman, Roman city. So they would have recognized this kind of imagery describing the, the, um, the armor of a Roman soldier okay, and a Roman guard. Also, it's clear why this would be at the front of Paul's mind as well as he starts to compare the Christian life to this because he is imprisoned, all right, and he has seen his fair share of Roman soldiers and Roman guards, and he's been on the wrong end of that many, many times, okay? And so he borrows this very um, familiar imagery, and he ties it into what it means to stand firm in the faith for Jesus Christ. Um, Also, what he's borrowing from here, too, would have been some ancient mythology that the people of Ephesus would have been familiar with. Okay, And some of the ancient mythological stories, it was said that the gods would kind of fashion this armor for the heroes of the story. And while in those stories that is completely myth, what Paul is saying to us is that in our story, this is truth and this is fact. God himself is fitting us. God himself is preparing us for the fight that he has called us into. And that's what we walk in. And that is our strength. And all of these things that he says make up the armor of God, they are all found in Jesus Christ and being rooted in Christ. And through that, through Jesus, we are fit for the battle That we're being called into. Now, here's what we need to understand when we talk about this terminology of battle and of fight. Okay? A few things that that we really, it's important for us to unpack. First of all, Paul is not saying that we are fighting for our salvation. Okay? No. Just like we just said, the kingdom has come. The battle is over. Jesus Christ has won that fight. He fought sin to the death. And then he picked his life back up again. Jesus Christ has won that fight. This is not a fight for your salvation. You cannot win that fight. Jesus has already won that for you, okay? It's not about that. What he's talking about is the real spiritual struggle that comes in walking in Christianity. Does anyone think, is anyone under the delusion that Christianity is just like this easy stroll through life? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There are very real struggles that you will come up against as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. When you walk in his steps, when you walk with him, when you live in obedience to him, you will experience very real struggle in your life. And Paul is saying when those times of struggle come, you have already been fit You've already been fit with the armor of God and you have been prepared and equipped and empowered to face this fight through the power of Jesus Christ in you. This is not about fighting for your salvation. That fight has already been won. This is also not a militant vision of Christianity. This is absolutely not a militant vision of Christianity, the kind of thing that is spread by force, The kind of thing that is spread by oppression or by aggression against people. Paul states very clearly to the people, listen, this is not a struggle against flesh and blood. We're talking a spiritual struggle here. We're talking about the the spirit of evil and the powers of evil in the world. The ramifications of sin. Absolutely not a militant vision of Christianity. And tragically, throughout history, Christians have twisted the Scripture without a doubt using this very passage, twisted Scripture as a reason of committing violence in the name of God. That is not the heart of God. That is a misrepresentation of the heart of God. That is a total misinterpretation of this passage Paul says very plainly, very plainly, this is not a struggle against flesh and blood. Christians do not demonize other people and place the label of enemy on other people. Quite the opposite. The radical call of Christianity, Jesus tells us, is to go beyond just loving your neighbor but beginning to love people who call themselves your enemies. You understand that? That is the radical call of Christianity. This is not a struggle against flesh and blood. And anyone who tries to take it in that direction is completely missing the point. We see this, that Paul experiences this himself in the city of Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19, we get the backstory here of when Paul started this church, of when Paul helped plant the movement of Christianity in Ephesus, and it tells us that Paul is there, and as he's speaking the gospel and as he's preaching the gospel, and people are coming to know Jesus Christ, then he begins to get this opposition against the mer- uh, from the merchants of the temple. Of Artemis, Okay, of the temple of Diana, because so much of their livelihood, because of their economy depends on the flourishing of this temple, depends on this goddess idol worship that is happening there in Ephesus. They see the message of the gospel and Paul in particular as a threat to their way of life. And so some of the merchants there in the city stir up a riot against Paul. That was so violent that if they hadn't pulled him out of there, he would have been torn to shreds. Okay, Paul would have lost his life. His life was very much threatened in this moment. Paul has seen that these people, physical people, were completely against him and wanted to take his life in this moment of rage. And yet Paul still says, listen, our fight is not against them. They are not your enemy." Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is against the spiritual powers of evil in the world. Those powers are very real, Paul tells us. And we must be prepared. We must be prepared to stand up against them. Being fit with the armor of God, being fit with the character of God, as he lives his character out through us in the world, then we are called into this spiritual fight in the kind of way that we fight oppression with justice. We fight oppression in this world with justice. Oppression is a form of spiritual evil in this world, a systematic spiritual evil in this world. And as Christians, we are called to actively fight against it. This is why so many of the people in this church continue to push us and continue to challenge us and call call us out on taking a stand against human trafficking, a very physical representation of a spiritual evil in the world. And as Christians, we're called to do something about it because we serve the God who hears the cries of slaves and does something about it. So we're called to join him in that fight. We're called to fight oppression With justice, to fight temptation in our lives with a humble reliance on Christ, to fight legalistic judgment against other people with truth and with grace. The kind of truth that pierces our own hearts and calls us on our own hypocrisy, and the kind of grace. ...towards other people that's been extended to us. We're called to fight indifference with compassion. We're called to fight hate and fear with love. And we're called to fight back the shadows of the fall... ...wherever we find them with the light of the world... ...who is Jesus Christ... ...who then calls us to be the light of the world... ...because of what he's done in us. This is a spiritual battle. As you draw your lines understand your enemy is not any other person not any other person if they call themselves your enemy that's the person you're supposed to love Jesus says to us okay our spiritual our fight is against the spiritual powers of evil in the world the ramifications of sin in the world be prepared he says get ready and be prepared to fight the fight. He goes then into the um, describing what, what this looks like. Okay, we're going to read the whole description. And then um, we're going to break it down a little bit here. Okay. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. As he breaks this down piece by piece, imagine again, he's thinking about the the very common image of this Roman soldier, and he begins to take it apart piece by piece and show us what it's like to be fit, to be fitted with the armor of God. He begins with the belt of truth. The belt of truth, the piece that holds the rest of it together. It begins with truth because truth reveals the rest for us. Truth reveals the rest for us. Truth reveals to us our own state of sin and our desperate, desperate need for God and for his grace in our lives. Truth then reveals to us the reality of grace, the beauty of grace and the possibilities of grace, what grace can accomplish in us. Truth reveals to us that Jesus Christ is the son of God. He is the savior of God of the world the messiah that we have been waiting for the one who has come to rescue us and to redeem us truth reveals the rest for us so it begins there begins with the belt of truth and through truth We see what righteousness is. And through truth, we see the reality of the gospel. And through truth, we see our need for salvation. And through truth, we see that salvation comes by faith, not by our works. And through truth, we see that we must be rooted in the word of God. All of these things fit together and begin with truth, he says. Put on the belt of truth. Fasten the rest of it together with truth. Then he moves on, and he says, he begins to talk about the breastplate of righteousness, okay? So imagine this piece of armor here that is designed to protect, like, the vital organs, okay? And especially the heart. It's Designed to protect the vital organs, but especially the heart. Righteousness guards our hearts. Righteousness, Scripture tells us, is simply a right relationship With God. That was not something that we could have had on our own because of the reality of sin, but Jesus Christ gives us his righteousness. Jesus Christ does that for us, he accomplishes that for us, and then brings us through his grace into a right relationship with God again. This righteousness guards our hearts. It guards our hearts, and we need that. We need our hearts to be guarded because Jeremiah tells us that above all else, the heart is wicked and deceitful. And Proverbs warns us, above all else, guard your heart because it is the wellspring of life. Everything else flows out of the heart. We know our heart's own tendency to go astray, to fix itself on things that cannot sustain it to place our love and our trust in other things, that shift of idolatry. We understand that, that that is is the tendency and the leaning of our hearts so many times. But as we're brought into this righteousness, as we are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, brought into relationship with God through Christ and through the Spirit, then he begins to guard our hearts, he begins to retrain our hearts, and he roots our hearts in him. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Righteousness guards our hearts. We absolutely need that. Righteousness is not this just outward kind of, um, just kind of outward shell of behaviors. So many times we begin to think that that's what it is, but it's not. Because if it's only that, it will cave in on itself if there is nothing inside to support it. Jesus himself warns his disciples, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, which is a crazy thought because they were the ones who had it all right. They did everything in their power to live according to the law, to keep it all straight and lined up properly. And Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that. And the people think, well, how can we ever do that? How can we ever do that? But Jesus says they're missing the point. They're missing the point. And then he challenges us in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. They will be filled. We can be filled with righteousness and that supports it. It's okay, guys. We're okay. It's all good. Cool. So... Put on the breastplate of righteousness, he says. Righteousness is designed to guard our hearts and to protect us in that kind of way, okay? All right, moving on. The next thing that we understand is this. He says, to have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And here we get the image kind of of the the soldier's of the soldier's boot, okay, and and this image of, of the ability to stand firm and at the same time to advance in the mission, okay, to stand firm and to advance in the mission. The gospel is this for us. The gospel is our footing. The gospel is our grip. Okay, it is the thing that keeps us in place. It is what we take our stand on. This is where we stand. We are rooted in the gospel. We must be grounded in the gospel. And through that, we are held firm, not slipping or losing our footing. The gospel is the place where we will take our stand. As all of these issues come flying at you and you have to decide, where am I going to take my stand on this? The gospel teaches us where to stand on all of these issues at times it change it challenges us to take stands that are incredibly uncomfortable but it says take your stand in the gospel this is the place to stand and if we don't do that we will lose our footing because of the gospel we remember that we were hopeless sinners but now we are saved by grace through jesus christ that we are rescued, that we are redeemed. We remember that we did nothing to earn it or deserve it, but that it is the free gift of God flowing out of his unconditional and unbelievable love for us. The gospel tells us that we are chosen, that we are adopted, that we are reconciled, that we are sealed as God's own. And the assurance of this gives us the footing to stand no matter what comes and pushes against us. It reminds us of who we are in Jesus. And as the fight comes at us and pushes against us, it roots us, it grounds us, and it says this is where we will stand. This is where we will stand, and we can do nothing else but that. Also, we're called in this to advance. We're called to advance the gospel. Understand, once again, that we're not talking about by doing this by force, even though he's using this kind of military imagery here. He's not talking about advancing it by force, by oppression, or by aggression. Not at all. In fact, he refers to it quite intentionally as the gospel of what? Peace. Exactly. The gospel of peace, and this is what the gospel accomplishes. It makes peace between those who were once enemies. This is what it does. You and I were enemies of God, we're told. But through the grace of Jesus Christ, we are now called friends. We are now called the children of God. This is what grace does. It reconciles enemies. It reconciles enemies. And Jesus challenges us to do the same to others just as he has reconciled us to himself though we were once his enemies he says love your enemies the gospel creates peace now there will be friction there will be pushback there will be challenge there will be difficulty but the gospel creates peace and it has that power as we, as we move on, we're going to have to skip ahead just a little bit, all right? We're getting tight on the time here. But let's skip ahead to the sword of the Spirit, okay? The shield of faith with the extinguished, it says extinguish the arrows, okay? It is that guard. We, we place our faith in God. We remember through faith the way that God had come through for so many people throughout Scripture, the way he has come through for us, and he protects us in those times of attack the helmet of salvation. This is a call back to Isaiah chapter 59, um, where it says that God places this on himself as well. He places on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. We get then to the, at the end, the sword of the spirit, Paul tells us, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Interestingly enough, as it's been as it's been pointed out countless times by other preachers around the world and through history, that this is the only weapon that we're told of in this entire setup that is offensive. Everything else is designed as a defensive weapon, but the word it says, the sword of the spirit is the offensive weapon, not for you to use to beat over the head of your friends. All right, but for you to use when your soul comes under attack. This is what the word of God does for us. It is so many other things, but this is part of what it is for us. This double-edged sword, it's told at times, which means it cuts our own spirit with conviction. But it's also this offensive weapon used in this battle. Jesus Christ does this himself as he goes through that, that period of 40 days of fasting in the desert and he goes under that temptation from Satan himself, what does he use every single time to fight back that temptation? Scripture, the word of God, it flows out of him. And with every temptation that comes at him, he answers it with a word from God, from the word of God. This is your offensive Weapon When the attack comes against you, as you root yourself in Scripture, as you bury this like a treasure in your heart, in those moments when you need it the most, it will come back to you. I sat across the table just this week with a friend who told me the exact same thing was happening in her life. Remembering these Scriptures when she needed them the most. Isn't that powerful? That's what Scripture does. It comes back that seed that is planted in you will come back and it becomes your offensive weapon when it fights against you. Wrapping up here, here, here's the last question. As we look at this incredible challenge from Paul to the people in Ephesus and, and he tells them to stand firm, to be fit with the armor of God, I'm left with the question of, so how did they do? All right? Did they live by this? What happened to them? Did they actually live up to this? Did they fight the good fight? Did they wear that armor? And did they take their stand and keep their stand in the faith? Well, actually, we have another letter to the church in Ephesus. It's not written by Paul. This time, it's written down by John, the Apostle John, through the Holy Spirit, through the words of Jesus. To the church in Ephesus. It's found in the book of Revelation in chapter 2. And in Revelation chapter 2, what we have here uh, in this book, the apostle John is seeing this revelation, okay, of the reality, all right, and, and, and he is seeing this vision. And as God is revealing these visions to him, part of what he is told to do is to write down this letter to the church in Ephesus. And this is what Jesus has to say to these people that we meet first in this book and that later we get this letter um, written to them. Here's what he says in chapter 2. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That is, uh, is uh, imagery of the seven churches that we have letters for here in these passages here. Okay, that's referring to the seven churches. Um, here's what he says. I know your deeds your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Praise the Lord. They did it, right? They stood firm as their fit, with this armor, they stood firm, it says, and they stood their ground. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the, the, their feet ready with the gospel, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Powerful, powerful. But then it continues on. And the next verse says this. Yet I hold this Against you, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. Here's what we need to understand. As we go deeper into our knowledge of Scripture, as we go deeper in our wisdom, as we persevere in the faith, as we fight these spiritual battles, as we root ourselves in these things, in truth and in righteousness and in the gospel and in faith and in salvation and in the word of God. Here's what you have to understand. Your first love is not truth. Pursue truth. Live by the truth. Your first love is not truth. Your first love is not righteousness. Your first love, as strange as it may seem to sound coming out of my mouth, your first love is not the gospel. Your first love is not faith. Your first love is not salvation. Your first love, as strange as it sounds, is not even the word of God. Your first love is Jesus. Your first love is Jesus. You see, the reason that we do love all of these other glorious things is because they reveal to us the truth about who Jesus is. Because they are are centered on Jesus. They are rooted in Jesus. They flow out of Jesus. That is why we love these other things and we should love them and we should cultivate them in our lives but your first love is Jesus. It is so easy in the Christian life. I don't care where you are, what stage you are at. If you are deep in your Christian life, it might be even easier for you to wake up one day and realize that you have forgotten your first love. Who is Jesus? Jesus. Jesus. See, Jesus is the author of truth. Right? Jesus is the source and the root of righteousness. Jesus is the hope of the gospel. Right? Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus is at the root of all of it. Jesus is the one who wins our salvation. Jesus is the subject and the promise and the fulfillment of the word of God. A challenge to my heart as I worked through this and came. To this conclusion, was this. Have you loved these other things so much? Have you tried to become a master of these other things in such a way that without even realizing it, you have forgotten your first love? Remember the height from which you have fallen. Be fit with the armor. Stand firm. But it seems as if there is a possibility of standing firm and yet falling from a great height at the same time. Remember your first love. As we close out, Jason and the band is going to come back up. But I feel like what we need to do right now is to have a few moments of just silent space to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of this, to allow the Holy Spirit to press in our hearts, whether this is us, are we Ephesus? Are we the Ephesians? Are we this church? It tries to be so faithful in the fight, and yet somewhere along the way, actually forgets our first love. Is that you? In this open space right here in these next few moments, allow the Spirit to push on your heart. And if He brings you under conviction at that point, allow Him to gently and yet strongly bring you back to that place of where Jesus is your first love, the center of your heart, the root of everything else. Holy Spirit, move in us and challenge us. Help us to see and help us to listen. Our hearts are open. Amen. Amen.